0: Welcome everybody, my name
1: is Joshua T. Berglund and we are on the Live Mono Worldwide Multimedia Broadcast Network. Uh, so grateful to have you here today. We are in for a very different, very special uh, and very fascinating broadcast today. Today is going to be unlike anything we've ever done before because the more I looked into the situation that we are about to talk about, the more I realized that how, un- how unqualified how I am to address this. And typically what I like to do is I like to have a little bit of a baseline and a little bit of understanding of how it is uh, or what it is that we're going to talk about. And typically it's usually me guiding the conversation. However, after getting to know our guest, uh, Mr. Thomas Evanstead, I I feel like I'm going to hand over the mic to him today. Uh, now, yes, I'm going to ask questions. Yes, I'm going to be involved, but I think it's extremely important Uh, for me to be able to give uh, this gentleman the platform to speak because he is going to dive into some things that, again, are so far over my head and, and something really that I just can't, I can't speak to except for third party. And typically with my guests, I love to have something I can specifically relate to. And yes, there are some things, but Again, in my spirit, when I'm praying about this, okay, oh, God, what, what questions do I ask? Like, Where do you want me to go? And all I could hear was, hand it over, hand it over. And that seems like a weird thing for me to do, but today, I'm going to do that. So anyway, I'm blessed to have you here. Today is going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be insightful. It's going to be interesting. And, uh, you know, I- I'm excited for it. So ladies and gentlemen, we'll be right back after this. What's up, everybody? We're back. My name is Joshua T. Berglund, and we are on the Live Mono Worldwide Multimedia Broadcast Network. You can find us, of course, by downloading our app on Roku or Amazon Fire. Or if you have a smart TV, you can just download the E360 app and find us there. Look, we have a whole bunch of sponsors, and that one of the things that um, one of our, our, our list of sponsors uh, was shown in that video there. And all you have to do is scan the barcode, and you'll be able to find it. But uh, this one I'm really, really excited about, Mitra 9. Um, look, I'm sick of energy drinks. Like I, <laughs> I'm burnt out. And of course, every time I actually go take the time to research every single little ingredient that's in it, I start to go, what the heck am I putting in my body? And look, I'm a stimulant junkie, meaning that I spent most of my life in abusing amphetamines. And so my adrenal glands are shot and caffeine just doesn't affect me the way that i wish it would i mean we all look how many times have you said hey i need some coffee today or i need an extra cup of coffee and so on well, coffee i can go to sleep with and so like it even got to the point that i could take certain diet pills and things like that and get a little bit of a boost but the fact is this it, it like even that quits working so when I'm sluggish throughout the mid, like say the middle of the day, and I'm just like I'm getting tired, or you know maybe I didn't sleep as well, or my body is just like wanting to kill itself because it's so angry from all the damage I've done to it, the fact is this: coffee doesn't work, nootropics don't work, nothing really works for me to just to kind of clear the fro- clear the fog. Well, Mitre 9 has done that for me. I'm um, a huge fan of it, and uh, it's something that. I highly recommend to you, so you can go to Mitra9.com and use promo code mana, and uh, you'll see us there. My phone is ringing, which is unusual to do. Oh, it's a scam. <laughs> so anyway, uh, cheers to you. Check out Mitra9.com, and uh, anyway, thank you so much for your support. So actually, I want to take a drink of this now. I actually really like the taste of it, too, and it doesn't taste like an energy drink. Anyway. All right, folks, I love being a part of broadcasts that put a spotlight on different shadow worlds. And, yeah, I've been in jail, um, and I, you know, and and I'm very, very fortunate that I avoided prison, especially going six times. I probably deserved to be there uh, much more. In fact, I probably really deserved to still be in prison. That's where I was supposed to go. By the grace of God, I didn't. So that said, today we're gonna get into the prison system a bit, and we're gonna put a spotlight on a shadow world that I don't know. And so that's why I feel led to turn over the reins today to our guest, Mr. Thomas Evanstad. And look, I don't know a lot about it, okay? But he is also in Minnesota. I've been following him on Twitter. I've been following his journey. And here's the thing, the man has got a lot of fight in him. And he's, stand- he's, he's fighting and he's standing for something that a lot of people don't know, but he is the loudest voice in the room kind of guy. And I don't mean that to be disrespectful. I actually mean it as a compliment because the man is not afraid to use his voice and his voice right now needs to be heard. So without further ado, it is an absolute honor for me to introduce to you, Mr. Evan, Evanstead. How you doing, Evan? I'm
0: doing great. How are you, Joshua?
1: I'm good. I'm so blessed to have you here, man. I apologize about the longer than normal intro. Um, but I am blessed to have you here,
0: and I'm blessed to be here. Thank you very much. You have a beautiful studio, by the way.
1: Thank you very much. Today is the very first day that uh, that we have this done and complete, and uh, um, knowing where we started from to, to to today is is something that I I mean I'll get emotional and start crying, but I don't want to take it. I don't want to take away any more of the spotlight from you that I already have. But I will tell you. Because my question for you, the only question I have scripted today, is what are you grateful for today? But I'm going to share what I'm grateful for. I'm grateful for God's grace, and I'm grateful that I even have the opportunity to do this. This And I mean broadcasting and helping share stories like yours. This was my childhood dream, and a dream that I never thought was possible. And, and even when I first started... You know, I didn't have a studio, I didn't have a camera, I didn't have a microphone, I didn't have any of that, I had a phone. And um, it was hearing a message from T.D. Jakes about focusing on the things you do have and not what you don't, that the light bulb went off, and it's amazing, in three years I went from a childhood dream of getting to have a talk show that I created for myself, uh, to now having my own studio, to having our own network, and, and God is amazing, so... Today, I am grateful that God gave us these dreams and visions for a reason and gave us something to pursue. And um, and for someone like me, where it felt like there was no hope and there was no end but death, this is a miracle. And uh, today is a very special day for me. But with all that said, um, I'm honored to have you here. And and Thomas, what are you grateful for today and why?
0: I'm grateful <clears throat> I'm grateful to you, Joshua. Um, it's been, um, a difficult journey would be to be putting it, you know, like saying that the grand Canyon is, um, is a small, you know, like a small little, little hole or something like that. Um, um, I've reached out to, um, various media for going on 25 years now. And as you said, um, at times I've been a voice crying in the wilderness and at other times I've been, um, a voice knocking on the doors of people—that's led to me going right back into prison. So I've—I've—I've tried—is what I'm saying. I've given it the college try, and what I'm grateful for is you giving me an opportunity after almost 25 years to tell my story. No one has ever ever allowed me to ever do that. It's only been what law enforcement, their version, and then their their media. You know, I call. Um, the media, l- law enforcement's media, it's the politicians' media, they're bought and sold, they're corrupted. they're in the can. Uh, they will not do anything <laughs> to expose truth in in situations like mine. So it's been um, a dark journey, but it hasn't been dark because I've always had faith over fear. So the yeah. thing I'm most grateful for, um, in addition to, as I've said, how grateful I am for you, to you to, to give me an opportunity to tell my story, is as you mentioned, Um, Because we've both been in difficult situations like everyone has, Um, all of us, every single person out here listening has had their own personal abyss that they've gone into or, you know, been forced into or whatever. So life is not easy for any of us. And so what I'm grateful for, above all, is God. My faith in God, Joshua, is what has gotten me through and to the other side, as I like to refer to it as, where I'm at now. Um, I'm on the precipice always because I'm still on probation. Um, They want to keep their eyes on me forever. Um, I pose a huge threat to them, not because I'm a criminal, but because of my ideas. Um, And them, by them, I'm talking about the establishment, the government, the people that have come to my doors and with no knock warrants um, traumatized me and um, thrown me into jails and prisons. And and so I'm grateful to God above and uh, above of all. And then my family, my mother and my father. I'm very grateful to my parents. Um, and that's what I'm most grateful for today. You giving me an opportunity to talk Jesus, my Lord and savior, I'm a born again, Christian. And, um, and, and, my mother and father and my siblings that are alive and my family members that are in heaven looking down,
1: man, praise God. That's probably the best gratitude I've ever heard. I've asked this question in 500 broadcast and, um, you know, I, every once in a while, I get blown away by an answer. And I really do appreciate that because it was it, it, it's sincere and it's obvious. So how did all of this begin? I mean, because I so when I ask, just to give people a little bit of insight before, when I interview anyone, I don't do a lot of back research of people. I, lo- I allow the spirit. It's kind of like with the Bible. I allow the spirit to reveal what it is that I need to see that day. And the same thing goes with who I choose to interview. If I feel led, I ask. And, and I ask for very basic things up front. With you, you um, because there was no bio and I understood that. And that, that's typically where God will show, like reveal things to me. We didn't have that. But what you did send me was some very interesting articles and research. And as I'm reading it, I'm going, holy crap, I, this, is, this is beyond me. So now I want to hear it directly from you. And there's a lot there. And it i mean—it was traumatizing for me to read it. So I think this is why I felt led to go, you know what, I want Thomas to speak on this. So you, can you start from the beginning about where, how all of this just went, I don't even know if sideways is the right word, but where did the crap hit the fan? Like what happened?
0: thank you very much um yeah I think the best bet to familiarize myself to to, to you because we as you said we don't know each other at all we've never met is <clears throat> the first time we've even been virtual and seen each other um we've had communication over twitter um it it all began uh you know n- uh july fifteenth nineteen sixty five um I was born in springfield illinois um Abraham Lincoln, you know, that's pretty good um, pedigree, I guess. (laughs) You know, so I was born in Springfield, Illinois, July 15th, 1965, as I mentioned. My family moved to Edina, Minnesota, Um, the 6,000 block. I don't want to put the house out there with uh, what the government has labeled me as a criminal and all that. Um, But my family moved to the 6,000 block of uh, Leslie Lane in Edina when I was all of two years old. So for all intents and purposes, I don't remember Illinois. I certainly loved Edina. <clears throat> so I grew up out in Edina, Minnesota. Um, I call it the bubble. My friends, I think we all sort of call it the bubble. Uh, that was in the, in the 1970s. So I grew up in the 70s and early 80s. I was in high school in Edina. The reason we called it the bubble, Joshua, was because it was so safe. Edina didn't have carjackings um, when I lived there. I mean, yeah. not one ever. I think when my brother Steve, uh, God rest his soul, um, I think when my brother Steve streaked Edina High School when streaking was the fad in 1975 or 76, maybe, and he made the and he made the news, the WCCO and whatever it was, Channel 11 back then, and Channel 5. I witnessed news. I think my brother's streak of the Edina High School was probably the most serious crime wave that Edina had experienced in the literally, for, for real, the two couple of decades that I lived in Edina. Um, so I grew up out in a safe city called Edina, uh, Minnesota. It's a suburb of Minneapolis. Now, if you can believe this, Edina shares the border with what nowadays is what referred to, you know, murderapolis. Um, so I grew up in a safe, what was then a safe bubble called Edina, Um, I have a sister. I'm the youngest of um, four children. My mother is Betty Lou um, Evanstad. My father is Virgil Dennis Evanstad. My mother is um, deceased. God God rest her soul. Um, Since 2005, when I got that news behind bars in Stillwater's A East. Um, And my father is still alive. Um, Thank God. He's in the veterans home over in Minneapolis. Uh, my dad is 94 years old. He's a World War II veteran. Um, and so, I, as I said, I grew up out in Edina. And then um, what's kind of relevant, I think, to our overall conversation here is um, the, the the one police encounter that I had um, in Edina when I was a kid, um, I played sports. I played football, basketball. And then probably around um, seventh, eighth grade, I started experimenting, smoking marijuana. My sister and my two brothers. uh, That's where I lost my thread. I apologize. Um, I have a sister, Beth, who's uh, born in 1962. Um, And then I have two older brothers, Bob and Steve. Um, Bob is the oldest. Then it was Steve, Beth, and myself. So I'm the youngest. And um, when I was, uh, I'll never forget that when I was um, probably, you know, first smoking marijuana, seventh, eighth grade, I was by myself at a park called Countryside Park, and so I'm on my bike or whatever exactly it was, and there's a little playground and stuff there, so I sat down, I was getting ready to smoke a bowl, and then I saw um, a marked police squad uh, take the curb at 70th or whatever exactly it is, the street there. And then the uh, police car c- came about 200 yards at me. He had to come off of the, again, the road and like come all the way like into the playground. Uh, where I was sitting there on the on on the slide, so long story short, it was officer nibby uh wound up a uh, funny anecdotal story later on. I think we might be able to get to on this cast if not maybe hopefully I can be a guest again if it if I, if i don 't do too terribly and uh so, Officer Nibby showed up, Joshua, and um, long story short, he uh, did, conducted the search. He found my, you know, quarter ounce or whatever it was, a half ounce of uh, the Mexican weed back then, forty dollars an ounce, had a big old bag of weed. Um, and then Officer Nibby proceeded to lecture me about how dangerous marijuana was, and then um, d- d- dumped it on the. He he dumped the bag out, and then got into a squad, and he had me leave before he drove away. So I got on my bike and I left. I watched him leave from a safe location, and hand my hand to God, I went back and I was able to uh, salvage about 90% of my stash, you know, the stuff that was on the ground. I'm pretty sure I left that for the ants. They The ants love it, as uh, Peter Tosh says famously in the song, Legalize It. So my earliest experience with law enforcement, that was my point, was I'm 15, 14 years old. I'm trying to chill and smoke a bowl and enjoy my day. And then Officer Nibby took it upon himself to... Um, to, to, you know, to, to do what, what I've unfortunately found police tend to do, which is rather than protect and serve the community, they've harassed and threatened and terrorized and traumatized me. But I know that's not typical. And I also am um, not trying to make a blanket statement about law enforcement. I support law enforcement. I back the blue. Um, there is, uh, I would put myself as a human shield in front of law enforcement that do protect and serve. So the vast majority of law enforcement do protect and serve my personal experiences have been vastly different. And I think that does provide a, an interesting perspective. Um, and so after that traumatizing experience with Nibby, where I was able to at least secure most of my stash, um, then I began touring with the Grateful Dead, which was extremely impactful for my life um, experiences. I received, I think, a great education at Edina. Um, I would like to think that the Edina High School was, at least in my opinion and my um, Experience. Um, Edina back in those days, and Edina education was probably superior to a four-year degree at you know at most colleges. <clears throat> if you actually studied there, you had great teachers, and it was a serious um, commitment that that community had to educating their children. And I was just so blessed. I had a happy childhood, so I was a happy, fun kid. And uh, then my um, oldest brother, Steve brought me to the Grateful Dead concert um, in St. Paul, Minnesota on July 10th, 1981. Transform me. Um, Third row center. I really didn't know exactly what was all happening other than everybody seemed happy and uh, the music was good and and it was like a great experience. And so then when the dead returned the next year, um, I went back in 82 and 83 to St. Paul to the Civic Center um, and then the big event was when I went out of state uh, the following year for the first time to see the Grateful Dead, July 4th, 1984, um, five season Civic Arena. Um, and uh, what was interesting to our conversation maybe here is um, I recall very vividly, uh, my friends and I, we drove to a campsite in Iowa. Um, we all d- dosed on LSD. We're having the time of our lives, smoking weed, and just enjoying nature and everything else. And then um, eventually, we all fell asleep. And then I also have a very, very vivid recollection of this memory, much more even than Nibia driving at me, which is pretty, pretty, still pretty vivid from when I was 14 or 15. Um, but I had um, I-, I felt something on my, you know, on my side of my, on my ribs. And uh, at first, I thought I was dreaming. And uh, and then during my dream, I thought, well, this is kind of a nightmare. I wonder, you know, well, well, what's going on here? I'm being like a, uh, attacked on my side of my body, you know. Um, and then when I came to consciousness, um, the first thing I saw was a boot. I um, uh, could show you pretty much one moment. <laughs> um, I have one of these myself, kind of a nice little mm, helpful for my deliveries I do. So it's like a duty boot that police wear. And I'm I'm being kicked in my side. Um, and so then I look up and I see the brown uniform and the stripes, you know, of the sheriff uniform, or whatever it is. And, and then I look up and it's, uh, I'll never forget, I saw the badge before I saw the person. And it was Lynn County, L-Y-N-N. So Lynn County, sheriff's officer. And um, anyhow, so she, she was like r- rousting all of us and all this and that. But um, it wound up fine. She didn't, like, arrest any of us, and, and so that was okay. But it was just kind of a, um, not a great way to wake up with the, the old toe of to the, you know, the boots to the ribs for a while there until I, I woke up there a couple, couple – didn't take long, kick or two, and I was pretty wide awake. Like, what's going on here? Uh, but anyway, the Grateful Dead show was incredible, and then that set the tone for me for 60 shows that I saw throughout the United States um, going from Las Vegas west. Never saw the boys in their backyard in California. Would have loved to have – but um, so those were the good old days, um, and then uh, let's fast forward to about 1998. Um, I'm working for All American Automotive. Um, I had a career there, and um, I was one of their top salesmen, pretty much from the time that I walked in the door. Um, someone once said I had the gift of gab. I could, you know, sell my way out of a cardboard box uh, with WD-40 and a silicone, you know, maybe mix. And then it's funny, when we started the show, it came into my head then, but I didn't uh, think of it to spit it out there, so to speak. But it's come back to me. And when I was in uh, high school, I had a very close friend named Mike Hayes. And um, uh, Hazem, as I called him, Hazem would call me Ev. I was known as Ev to all of my friends. You know, hey, what's up, Ev? Uh, and so one day, Mike, um, Mike said to me, hey, you know what, Ev? He goes, Someday you should uh, you should have, like, some kind of, um, like, a, a TV show or radio. You know, back then there weren't podcasts. This is 1982 probably. He says, and I, I even have a name for it. I said, really, what's that? He said, An Hour with Ev. So, uh, again, I'm very grateful on a serious note, Joshua. Um, you've allowed me to have some time, The Hour with Ev. So, moving right along uh, to the punchline on some of this stuff. Um uh, I was working at All-American Automotive, um, as I said, and on March 6th, 1998, um, after I had been involved with uh, t- uh, telephone chat lines for two or three years, um, where I, I had started out on these chat lines um, over on one whole end of the spectrum, uh, which would be marriage-minded. Um, I went out there initially seeking a wife. I was lonely um, in my you know early 30s, I guess. And I just had not, I've never been a bar guy. So I've, uh, as far as meeting women, I just wasn't really uh, going to the places apparently to be meeting um, women and, and having uh, many dates and relationships and things along those lines. So mainly, um, I, uh, for the most part, you know, sort of just did my thing. And then, like I say, one day I sort of came to this epiphany around 30 ish or early 30s that, gee, you know, um, I'm lonely and it would be a wonderful thing. And that's what God intends is to have a wife and everything. So I started off on the uh, marriage-minded. And then over time, um, I would go from the marriage-minded, where there were not many people, uh, candidates, women to date. And then it would be um, a long-term relationship. And then it would be um, like casual dating. And then on the far end of the entire spectrum was this thing called um I'd have to think of what that exact term was, but they had the entire spectrum. And, um, you know, sadly and tragically, but at least honestly, and I own what I did do, which um, as a imperfect Christian and a person of faith who has, uh, you know, makes mistakes and sins and, and falls, um, I went from these wonderful intentions where uh, it's, it's a great line, of course, uh, the Bible, I'm sure, the road to hell just paved with great intentions. You probably know who said it. I don't. But anyway, so you have that. And uh, despite my great intentions, I started out with marriage minded and then I started uh, moving into the spectrum where there were more candidates as I was getting into the more um, a free for all and like a, a sexual superhighway. Um, that off-ramp was the uh, intimate encounters. That's the term I couldn't remember a minute ago. So there were like 100 women on intimate encounters at any given time, practically, almost 24-7 on this buddy system chat line. Um, And then, uh, so as I met a lot of women over that chat line, Joshua, um, I met um, several women who were not adult women. Um, And, when I would meet these minors, they would be fully uh, okay with having sex, going somewhere. They were used to meeting adult men and having sex with them. Um, And so I met some minors and um, in every single case uh, without any uh, question whatsoever, if there was any question whatsoever about um, the age of the person I was meeting over the Buddy system, you know, age adult, 18 only, hang up now if you're not 18. That was the extent of the filter. There is no filter. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'll explain later how that came into play on the whole um, tragedy that has, thanks to God, brought you and I together at this moment. Because as much as I talk about dark and tragedy and this and that, what I believe again is the most important thing for me that I can get across in this entire podcast is that for myself personally i 've had to experience a ton of fear um, i 've been in situations where i 've been scared to death and it 's not been once or twice it 's been almost um, it 's been many many times um, i 've been in prison in every prison in minnesota they 've had me in um, stillwater uh, the oak park heights i 've been around killers. And violent people, and I can tell a couple of stories about that anecdotal later, but that's not the important thing. The important thing is no matter how scared and how intimidated, and no matter what the consequences have been and will continue to be, when I feel a calling from God to take the knowledge and the experience that what I've gone through, And survived to tell about it, thanks to you and God Almighty, um, that I have a calling to take all of that knowledge that I have and let the public know what is really going on, how dangerous it is out here, uh, out right out of your, right in your home. You have absolutely no idea, the general public, what the actual violent criminals think about, talk about what their plans are. I've been, I, I listened to it and downloaded it for a decade in our prisons. So I know who they are. I know where they're from. I know what they want to do, what their plans are, where they're going. When I know all of it for the most part. I don't know, you know, every little last detail, but I know more than anybody in the entire state. I, I've forgotten more about public safety than. The Walls appointee, um, Minnesota's public safety commissioner, John Harrington, will uh, I've forgotten more than he will ever learn or ever would could hope to know. And the worst part of it is that he doesn't want to um, learn anything from me. So I applied to, to be uh, Governor Walls' public safety commissioner. No one is more qualified in this state, and I can certainly run down again. I could just spend a lot of time going over my qualifications, but. Um, Instead, uh, Walls didn't even acknowledge me, Joshua. So there was like this process and you would go fill out this huge thing and do you want to be with just him and whoever. And so it took me an hour to get through his vetting thing to apply. And then Governor Walls' DFL administration did not have enough respect or just common courtesy um, to even acknowledge me. So anyway, he uh, selected... um, uh, the politically correct choice, the transit cop, Harrington, who I run into at the YMCA all the time. John Harrington is at the YMCA instead of dealing with public safety. Uh, but anyway, enough on that. I digress. Well, hey, My Pete, go oh,
1: I'm really sorry. Good. Go ahead, Joshua. Well, we skipped over something that's monumental, and you have to understand that a big part of the broadcast we do go after pedophiles, human trafficking. We have women that have been trafficked by the church, men that have been trafficked by the government we so this is an area that this audience that's watching that this is a sensitive subject so we went from on well what was very it sounds like craigslist but back then before they had the internet these chat lines and i know what you're talking about because i was introduced to i mean i was over sexualized at seven years old i mean and it took off for me so but it it sounded like you were engaging with minors and then the next thing that you said was, I've been in every federal prison in Minnesota.
0: The state so, prisons. Yes. I need yes. You to.
1: I need yeah, you to let me, go let me back. make that
0: connect. I, I, I'm very sorry. Um, oh,
1: that's okay. Please go back to that because.
0: Yeah, yeah. Thank you for the redirect. That was awesome. With my mental health problems that I have and my PTSD, I get. And then when I get. Um, um you know thinking about some of the things that 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 they 've done to me i I get upset and it 's hard to to stay focused so thank you very much for the redirect i 'm usually really good with the redirect um thank you so as I was out, and this is the most important part you you're right so as i'm this innocent person a non sex offender out meeting women and and, and girls minors but they're all supposed to be 18 or up. If there was any question, I would uh, say to them, I have to see Min- a valid Minnesota, you know, just like, I guess, carding somebody at the bar. And again, I am not trying to suggest that my uh, conduct or behavior then was, um, um, was where it should be, should have been, or was morally you know, upright and all that. That's clearly not the case, um, but I am not A rapist. I have never forced anyone, and that is not me. So that's part of why um, I am fighting because they have labeled me a rapist, a sex offender, and they've put that stain on me for 24 years. And God willing, I'm going to shed that if it's the last breath, and it's the last thing I ever do. And because not uh, because it's wrong is the thing. And exposing them isn't even the most important thing. It is clearing my name. Um, so anyway, as far as the minors, I would need to see valid ID. I would say to them, uh, if you don't have a driver's license or a Minnesota ID, whatever that is, the EBT, something that tells me you're 18 and a photo ID, Um, And and so most of the time, uh, they did not have that they would have some kind of words or excuse, and they were willing, they would say to me, you know, I'll do this, that sexual acts. Um, And uh, so there was never ever any, um, any blurred line for me. Um, My again, morals were perhaps now where they were not where they should have been, but I was very, very clear on two things consent and, uh, you know, age. Um so I met many several miners and probably over the course of by the time I finally had had enough, perhaps many minors, and in every single last case, if they couldn't produce valid ID showing me the uh, photo ID they're 18, I would tell them no and, le- and, and and that would be the end of whatever we were you know going to perhaps get in, get involved in. And so, Uh, Finally, I had enough of it, and because of who I am, and the reason I'm on here today, Joshua, is that I am, I have always been about helping people and saving people and about public safety, Um, I called up um, Channel 5 Eyewitness News, and all of this is verifiable, it's all documented, I have the documents to prove every word I'm saying. Um, I called up Channel 5 Eyewitness News. Um, I was dating um, a Native American lady that I'd met, and she was pregnant, but with not my child. Um, and she was drinking, and she was doing a lot of cocaine. And so I'd called the um, – tried to get her help. And they told me that they could do something about the drugs because they're illegal, but they could not do anything about the alcohol. And so I thought that was absurd. I called up Channel 5 Eyewitness News, and they told me, Tom, your timing is incredible. Uh, we are doing a story with the governor of Minnesota, Gretchen Carlson, about fetal alcohol syndrome. And so I have the piece. It's on YouTube. I can send it to you, and the viewers can check it out. Um, in fact, it's on YouTube. It's called, like, F- I-, I have to get the exact name. Um, So anyhow, they did a little piece where they showed me, get this, um, on my last free day, March 5, March 5, 1998, that was my last day of freedom. And um, they're interviewing me, and I'm telling them that Gail, um, because alcohol is illegal, there is nowhere to put her in in, in dry dock so that she can protect her unborn baby. The the government and the state of Minnesota had nothing for her. If it was, again, cocaine, they would take her to, you know, wherever they take someone to detox. But she was drinking herself to death and killing her baby. And the authorities and the system told me, sorry, um, have a nice day. So that's when I didn't stop there. That's who I am. I kept going to try to save the baby and help Gail, the girl that I was with. Um, and so anyway, they did a little piece on the news, and then ironically, uh, the very people from the Buddy System chat line. Oh, they watched that piece on the news. I went out and I made sure. I um, what is that? You huff and you puff, and I was going to blow the house down, Joshua. Uh, you apologize my volume. It's kind of intentional. I, um, I I was going to shut down the Buddy System chat line. That was going to be the end of it. And as you probably even know me such a little tiny bit now, and maybe the audience a little bit. Um, When I dig my heels in, I think my dad said it the best ever anybody has ever said. My dad told me in 1985, I think, Tom, if you took one-tenth of that passion and that drive that you have to go out and see Grateful Dead all over every corner of the United States, and you just channeled that into, you know, a job and like a career, and then, you know, that you could just, the sky is the limit, son. So, So he was right, Joshua. I'm a passionate guy. So um, I called up Channel 5 Eyewitness News, and um, I, we did that piece. And then here's the important part. When they shut off the camera, I said to Mike Mabe, M-A-B-E, uh, and then maybe had his cameraman. There were two people present when I said to Mike, hey, Mike, uh, thank you very much for you know, doing this piece. I think it's really important. I really appreciate that. Um, there's another thing I wanna to talk to you about r- right now. Your 12-year-old daughter, okay, audience, this is really important to hear your 12-year-old daughter i told him your you know your 13-year-old son for for god's sake uh, but but it's you know the, the females for the most part obviously for the most part so i said to him look you're, you're, i told this guy that there is this buddy system chat line that i'm very heavily involved in and i've been trying to threatening to shut it down for a while and that, um, there's a lot of minors on there that I've been meeting, and I am scared for these minors. I know they've been having sex with adult men because they've told me. And, and, um, and I know how this chat line works. And so I want to shut down this chat line. Mike, what do you think? He said, This sounds like a great story, Tom. I can't believe that's what is the filter to keep them off there. I said, Oh, it's a verbal message saying, If you're not 18, hang up now. I said, I want you to do a story so that the parents in Minnesota, um, can know that their child can access this telephone line that they're doing. And anyway, so it was this huge, there was a ton of people on that, on that chat line and there were minors and I wanted to protect the minors. So I wanted to do a story with Mike, maybe. And I told him that on Thursday, March 5th, 1998. Well, I didn't get a chance to quite do that story because the following day on March 6th, 1998, um, um, I shouldn't say her name because I think she's like one of my victims, I think, of my latest stalking the d- d- whole frame. Um, so I'm just trying to stay calm. But, but I can certainly say that the Richfield Police Department and other agencies uh, conducted a no-knock warrant um, on me in um, uh, Mound, Minnesota. And as you can perhaps perceive, they traumatized me severely. Um, you know, I'm shaking just even thinking about it. I was sleeping. And my fiance, um, I can say her first name, Brenda, left for work. Thank God. And uh, I had, I had, you know, p- 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 I apologize, but I'll try to stay composed. I had both of my dogs and my four cats. I never saw again with me in that in that home and mound. And these, um, and these, uh, you know, cops, these SWAT teamers g- g- going after me. Th- 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 they. They, they you know b- blew the door down, and uh, I was sleeping, and so I heard like, what sounded like a bomb hitting my house, and then I got up out of bed, and I remember th- th- that Brenda wasn't there, and I didn't know what was going on, and within seconds, it happens, and that's how people die. Um, I came out of my room. And I just had to t- ten of them. You know, coming at me, masks um, and shotguns, and and just lots and lots of um, uh, 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 of screaming and and lots of guns. And so it was extremely traumatizing. But anyway, I'm very lucky they did not kill me. They took me into custody, um, and then I found out how the criminal justice system works here in Minnesota, which is that I have the worst case of wrongful conviction in state history, and not one of these uh, cover-up media will, will touch it. WCCO, KSTP, Fox 9, Care 11, Star Tribune, Pioneer Press. Uh, they'll do other stories with me. Tom Lydon has come out and talked with me and interviewed me about the sex offender, um, they were going to release from MSLP that now works at the Goodwill outlet, Tom. Uh, the, the, so that's part of the situation there, um, Joshua was that I've been wrongfully convicted. Um, I have an attorney. We, there is an attorney out there named Kathleen Zellner that most people know of from making a murderer fame. Um, I corresponded with her in 2017. It took me, uh, 35 days. I think it was for the jailer or to me to find a jailer to, uh, you know, risk his job and his career and give me her contact information because the Ramsey County workhouse authorities, Captain Belfield and John, uh, the case manager guy uh, they, they, and everybody that was under them, they would let me get the contact information for the lawyer. Um, and so um, after I wound up doing a decade in prison for a crime I did not commit, I got together a fantastic legal team. World famous lawyer, Peter Erlander, um, an ex-police officer, Diana Bugos from, I believe, Invergrove Heights or Cottage Grove. She called the Ritzfield Police Department, Joshua, and said, hey, I'd, I'd like to take a look at this Tom Evanstead guy's file. I'm not really sure if I'm going to come on the case yet as a special you know, investigator type, uh, another set of eyes, an ex-police officer. And uh, Ritzfield told Diana, oh, no, that that, 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 that that file's long gone. They hung up on her. So she called right back in and said, um, excuse me, that would be illegal. Uh, that's a first-degree crim sex conviction. That's first-degree, that's ag rape. You have to keep the file for 10 years by statute. And they said, well, as we've said to you, Tom Ebenstead's file is gone. Don't call us again. And so then um, she called me right then, Joshua, and said, you know what? I'm on the case, Tom. I was on the fence before, but I'm in now. And, um, and then before, um, before I could make my move on my exoneration, uh, the next thing I knew, um, let me think where they came at me the next time. Um, uh, the, the, then they the, the, then what they did was they formulated, oh, I remember now, um, I decided, Joshua, that because of, for public safety reasons, I had tried to reach our Hennepin County Sheriff, but I shouldn't name him either because he is definitely a, a, a victim, <clears throat> but he was the Hennepin County Sheriff, and I can tell the story, I just shouldn't name him and be careful what I say. Yeah. Uh, So anyhow, I went out to the Hennepin County Sheriff's residence because I had tried to reach him at, you know, work for his public work for two years. I emailed work and called work and talked to subordinates, left messages. So the guy just completely ignored me for two years. And so I thought, well, lives are at stake. And because lives are at stake, I drove out to his home and there was nothing that I could see saying, you know, don't keep out private, there's private property, you know, uh, there, there was nothing. Um, So anyhow, um, I went out to talk to the then sheriff about some public safety issues. He wasn't home. So I left. Uh, Then um, I made the decision to uh, drive over to the prosecutor's home, the Hennepin County prosecutor, who's also like another victim. So I have to be careful again, but I decided I wanted to go uh, talked to him at his home and I had not tried to contact him at work. So I acknowledged clearly that that was very wrong. And I, um, uh, you know, and I acknowledged that that was wrong. Um, but I did go to his home to talk to him because in my car at that moment, I thought to myself, this man. Um, this man put me in prison for a crime that he knows I did not commit that he has known, I believe, all along, but certainly at some point, if you look at the evidence in my case, um, it is so clear, Joshua, 20 minutes into a little bit of a read of of an overview on my case and every bell and every whistle of wrongful conviction. So anyhow, um, I drove to the prosecutor's home that day and made that decision because I thought to myself, I sat in a prison cell because of him and I could not even go to my mother's funeral, let alone spend the rest of my time with her and now my dad is, you know, going and um and so after 20 some years of this I thought that what would be reasonable would be to go knock on his door and to try to ask him if he would please please come forward and just tell the truth that's all. And then I thought if he Somehow had changed or repented or something had happened in 20 years that my dad would not have to die like my mother did with me as a convicted sex offender, a rapist. So that's why I went to um, that guy's home that day and, you know, interrupted his whole life where the next thing I knew, um, I didn't even get home that night. (laughs) By the time I got home, I had four, uh, three Mark squads in front of my home. Um, so I, you know, I took the powder. I was scared, um, and um, and I thought they were going to pursue me and jump on me and grab me. But they're so incompetent, they couldn't even catch me at my own home, where three of them were stationed, and they have my vehicle. I had just, uh, so the, this is really just the the, the epitome of these people that they have let rapists and murderers and child molesters, they have decriminalized parental rape. In 2016, there is a federal report that came out that Pam Poyer wrote the foreword on that I can send you. And the judges and the people that have locked me up for nothing, for their own crimes and their own manufactured lies and you know garbage, these very same people that recycle, these rapists and these murderers, and then even when they kill their domestic victims, they get six years and they're out in three. So um, I have lived this for 24 years, 25 years now. And, um, and so in addition to, so I, they wound up, uh, Joshua, uh, charging me with two counts. Imagine this now, two counts of terroristic threats. I'm now in jail again. Uh, oh, you no, know, that's right. I missed a very important piece, the arrest. So I take a powder from my home in Edina, and I call Peter Erlander, who was the lawyer I was talking about that was going to blow this whole thing wide open. Peter, I'm in trouble. I got three squads in front of my house. What did you do, Tom? Well, I drove over to the sheriff's house after not being able to reach him for, you know, two years at work. Okay, and what happened? Well, he wasn't home. His wife was there. We chatted for a minute. She said, I want you to leave. I left. That's it? I said, that's it. He said anything else. I said, yeah, um, I drove over to the prosecutor's house that, you know, locked me up. And he said, well, that wasn't probably really bright. And I said, yeah, yeah, I know. Um, and then he said, um, so what happened? Oh, he wasn't home either. So I talked to the wife for a minute and then she wanted me to leave also. So I left. He said, that's it. I said, that's it. He said, well, you're in. He, he said, you're in danger. Um Uh, I told him I just left and three squads were in front and I'm leaving the area. He said, yeah, I tried to get away from them safely. Um, And then he said, police have a license to kill. He said, do not go back there under any circumstances. He said, "Um, you have a back door there. It's not good visibility from the neighbors. He said, they can make a claim that you made a reach for the gun belt and they will all back each other and you will be dead. And that's going to be the end of Tom Evans, dad, and your voice and your everything you know. I'm a big voice, um, not like against maybe the establishment. In my mind, it's just more of the people are the problem. It's really not even so much the systems. The systems need you know help, but it's the people, um, and so the people that are the problem. They view me as obviously uh, not just a big pest, but somebody that they can you know squash by just sticking into jail cells and prison cells. And they've been very 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 good at that, uh, Joshua. So anyhow, I. Uh, I, I, Peter tells me, why don't we come up with a plan? Go to my dad's and, I, and then have my dad follow me back home. I said, are you certain that would not put my dad into any jeopardy? "Yep, yeah, Tom, that's going to be fine. They will not do anything with your dad anywhere near there. So I go to the Dino West condominiums, um, call my dad. My dad's on his way down to come meet with me and follow me back to the house and turn myself in. You know, gee, what have I done? I tried to talk to the sheriff about, you know, cordoning off. The channel Joshua, the guy was out there every day uh, lobbying against medical marijuana. The sheriff, okay, so not recreational marijuana. So I didn't understand that at all. We're talking about medical marijuana. Wouldn't that be between the doctor and the me and my my doctor? Why is law enforcement sticking their nose into my health, my medical? I um, mean I understand their arguments because that's you know but but that's beside to me it's not 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 what's important so r- the the sheriff at that time was spending a huge amount of time on a huge he was the face the public face of the we cannot have medical cannabis in any form available to people like me that have PTSD and need it rather than taking the siracquel where I shook the bottle in front of the one medical cannabis hearing that the state allowed and when they said does anybody else have anything to testify to um after law enforcement made their little spiel and I watched mothers holding their children can you imagine this i watched mothers holding their uh, god bless them their broken up children from the epilepsy the, the, the very you know harmed and diseased their their children and then I watched law enforcement testify, no, those people can move to Colorado, they can, go to, they can go to California, they can move to a weed-friendly state, they can get the hell out of here. And then when law enforcement was done, I called them full law enforcement, F-A-U-X. These are the people that need to be behind bars rather than running our, our operation. <laughs> so full law enforcement, you know, I shouldn't name them, but, but you know who they are. They're, they're, in the, they're in the video at the hearing. Um, so I'm sitting there, I'm, you know, always in my, you know, try to stay as medicated as I can uh, legally and whatever all that is. So I'm in my Bob Marley Tam, I've got the Bob Marley shirt, pot leaves everywhere. Then I hear the person saying, public comments, we're down to, you know, 10 seconds or whatever it is, does anybody have anything to say? I looked around the room, Joshua, there's 500, there was 500 people there, if there was one, I, the place was jam-packed. Nobody had a retort to law enforcement. So I'll make this quick, but I went down, took the podium, I said, why is it that in this country, 21 or 22 people, veterans, not people, but our veteran, our vets, um, 21 or 22 vets a day, reach for the gun and they blow their brains out. When, if they could reach for the weed and have one hit, our own government says in the pot application, Pot patent. The United States government put out an application for the miracle drug, the oils, and how it opens up all the synapses and the neuropathy and the uh, ischemic, uh, you know, this and the Parkinson's, that and the everything under the sun deal. If you read, our spend. own U.S. government's pot patent application, it's, they know what, what that stuff, some of what the plant can do, the miraculous medical properties. But yet, of course, on the same, in the same breath, it's Schedule 1. It's as dangerous as fentanyl and heroin. It will lock you up in federal prison in a heartbeat, you know. Um, but I lost my train of thought there for just a moment. Uh, maybe I could grab that. You can redirect me. Um, redirect me.
1: Well, so, golly, man. Well, first of all, I want to back up and say something it takes a lot of balls for you to even speak out about what you're speaking out against because i guarantee you there's people looking at this right now going yeah right innocent my ass and you know what i mean and then and i'm yeah. sure there's other people that believe you i want to say this firsthand before we go any further i believe you i believe you and i totally see how this can happen because man I mean, I was a chem sex addict. You give me a stimulant, any stimulant, really, it didn't matter. Meth, coke, acid, whatever. It was, that became a sex drug. But I know what it's like. I grew up with, um, you know, even though I was born when the internet wasn't around, I remember the chat lines. I also remember the newspaper articles. I remember how swingers ads were put out. And when you would get in correspondence with them, and look, I started young, ladies and gentlemen. So, like, even though I'm not that old, I started young and I figured out the game pretty early. And you know what? I mean, even though I I was underage at the time, looking, I mean, I was under 18 when I first started pursuing. I saw things and discovered things that my young brain should have not discovered. And I also know what it's like. I've been arrested because of Craigslist. I thought I was meeting a hooker. And, uh, well, it was a cop. And that was pretty terrifying. And I know how they deal with those arrests. And there was, you talked about 10 cops. There was six in my case, but they had shotguns, guns, and it was the most intimidating experience of my life. And I've been to jail a bunch. That said, I also understand how when you meet somebody, you're going, well, They've got big boobs. They've got all this stuff that, yeah, they're young looking, but, you know, they're at least in their 20s. There's no way that they could be developed that way. And there, But there's times that it's sketchy. You don't know. But oh, when definitely. you're in that world of looking for relief and looking for whatever, it's super, super easy to put yourself in a vulnerable, dangerous situation. This is the problem with, look – and, I, and like, I'm very fortunate that I was able to avoid situations like that. I was falsely accused of rape one time. And I thank God to high heaven that all my buddies that I was on that trip, and not Colorado, it was New Mexico. If they weren't videotaping from above, I would be, the, the, what the woman said I did, because I embarrassed her. I was going down on her, and she told me, and I went up to kiss her, I'm probably being a little bit too graphic, but whatever. I went up to kiss her, and she told me to brush her teeth, or I should go brush my teeth first. And I kicked her out of the house because she was an idiot. I mean, I, I was just—I'm my young, cocky college days. I was drunk, but I kicked her out. But I embarrassed her so bad in doing so that she went and told the cops that I forcibly raped her. So as screwed up as that is, I still look it. I'm responsible for what happened. You know, I was an ass to her. I was, I mean, verbally lashed out at her. I didn't deserve to be accused of rape, but nonetheless, I put myself in that situation. I think about all the other situations that I put myself into. I did too. Because of my addiction and my desire to escape. So my point is this. I'm not making excuses for people that get in trouble but I'm saying you can get set up. And here's what I also believe, uh, Thomas. I also believe that you were sniffing around in something that the government, the police, and other people were using as a tool for human trafficking. And what you did by wanting to expose it was going to blow them up. Because I had never ever fire thought fire of fire that. Fire. That's I
0: fascinating. That's really fascinating. See. That I had never, ever occurred to me.
1: Oh, it, 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 because I oh, get to wow. work. I'm involved. When I said at the very beginning of the show that I'm involved with trafficking victims and people that are now fighting to expose preachers, churches, cops, politicians you name it. I'm telling okay. you right now, you're sniffing around at something and exposing them, and that's why you got in trouble.
0: Okay, that's really really heavy. And Joshua, while you just were bringing this up, drusidine, remember how I said that was so critical to me? The the, the drusidine, I'll remind you. Um and then the solution to the violence. I mean, can you imagine the, the 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 grace of God that Minnesota's innocent man here, as you very correctly said, Joshua, people that don't know me, anybody can be guilty and come out and talk about how innocent they are. How common is that, I suppose, with the guilty criminal? Um, but a couple of maybe salient points here would be that um, I founded the Minnesota Innocence Project that was called dot uh, org for a while. Now they're the Great North, great North the Innocence, whatever. But But here's what happened on that. So after I get wrongfully convicted, and we certainly don't have enough time today to go down the rabbit hole on exactly the curves and how it happened, but I can say to you that I was wrongfully convicted. I absolutely did not rape that woman. Any other woman did not have any, uh, that is a lie. The case is a lie. And like you mentioned, the reason that it all came about is because of my passion and my desire to actually save minors. That is the absolute God's honest truth and the real irony. Had I uh, kept my mouth shut or done what most apparently of the adult men were doing and you know, violating the, the, the children, uh, then everything would have been fine. But that's not me. So instead, I took a stand. I wanted to shut down. I I was going to say this earlier, but I thought, well, that's going to be minutia. They don't care. Now it's relevant. I went so far, me, not the investigators or the cops. I looked into the parent company of the buddy system. How is this? How many states is this? How many children are being? So this is so highly relevant. What an absolute uh, lightning strike for me. It never occurred to me that that could have been uh, the backlash or what have you, that they're trying to. That, that never occurred to me. So uh, Woonsocket, Rhode Island, the, the name of the parent company. But I did a lot of research, is my point. And I tried to trace it back and do whatever I could to plug that, to stop that. And they stopped me before I could stop that, um, before I could stop the chat line. And then so what's important is on the Innocence Project, after I got was wrongfully convicted and sent to prison from the Lino Lakes Prison telephone uh, booth, I call up uh, the Innocence Project in New York, the real people. And I have Barry Sheck got on the phone and I spoke to Barry for probably five minutes and I explained to him my circumstances. And I will never forget. Barry Sheck said to me, Tom, I have no doubt that you are innocent, um, but you have to understand. I have guys in here on death row. I have a population that's 10 times yours in terms of the, the prison and the amount of people that I have to dig out that are, I have Tom, I have guys that are that are doing life. I have to work my way back from death row and then life sentences. I'm not going to be able to get to you. I'm going to be honest. It's not going to happen, but I can tell you my best advice. Establish an innocence project in your state. I said, Barry, I'm behind bars. He said, uh, uh, that's the best I can do. And I wish you the best brother. Boom. We hung up. And so instead of me, uh, you know, going back to my cell and weeping, what did I do? I began um, my um, my my work is what I began, with my father pushing from the outside and me pushing from the inside of prison. Um, by pushing, I'm talking about writing letters and calling and politely requesting, will you please do this here? And then in my um, uh, Ruben Rosario from the... St. Paul Pioneer Press. He was a longtime reporter for decades. Um, To prove my innocence, at one point also, um, Joshua, I uh, contacted Dr. Larry Farwell. Contact him yourself and confirm it, you know, folks. Um, Dr. Larry Farwell, an incredible guy. He's the creator of uh, the inventor of brain fingerprinting. Uh, His dad worked on the Manhattan Project, so pretty pretty good pedigree or progeny, as I like to say. His dad worked on the Manhattan project. I learned about from behind bars after writing to, J- to James McCloskey at Centurion ministries for help, uh, who, you know, helps innocent people get out. No response ever there. Um, I wrote Reuben hurricane Carter, um, several letters after watching his movie hurricane and seeing what hurricane went through, uh, up in Canada. Then I don't think any, if anybody ever responded, no one ever lifted the finger, but it is what it is. So anyway, I wrote letters to every single innocence project from behind bars. Um, and the Minnesota's Own Innocence Project, they um, looked at my application and then said because it's a consent case um, that there's no DNA to test, that because they cannot take a beaker of or something on a, you know, uh, you know, on a victim's underwear or what have you and test a semen stain or something like that, there is no physical evidence. So they told me they are not able to take my case. And then as I tried over a decade to just meet with. You know? Can you imagine this? Once I got out of prison, I contacted them over there, a a couple two miles away, and said, "Can I just meet with you, Uh, Julie Jonas and Erica Applebaum?" Erica Applebaum was the executive director forever. Now it's a Heather somebody. Uh, Julie Jonas is their legal person forever. And how many people have they dug out of Minnesota that are innocent? To my knowledge, one that I know of for sure. Get this: the elegant Sutherland. He's in doing a double homicide. But, oh, boy, they spent a ton of time to prove that one of his rape convictions, and you, you can look it up, this is what the Minnesota Innocence Project did after my father and I founded them to get me out, which 20 minutes of looking at my case, you can see what happened to me. They could have gotten me out uh, by lunch, by lunch break. Instead, they've never met with me in 20, in, in 20 years. And then um, I've asked them, will you meet with my dad? Because when I asked it, why won't you meet with me? Well, Tom, because you're so harassive, threatening, it's the entire mantra from law enforcement and less the media. But the media simply echoes anything that law enforcement or the people that feel threatened, not because of a person being a a, a criminal threat or violating laws or committing crimes, but my crimes are thought crimes. I'm a political prisoner. When Erlander and my team, Diana Bugos, we were going to go after the exoneration and get the millions waiting for me. See, that's a part of it also, but it's mainly their reputations. They don't care about the millions. Look at the MPD murders, whether it's Justine Damon or the latest one, and I'm sure I'm missing some in between, but this Ben Crump guy, oh, and I'd love to have a part of his portfolio, huh? I mean, that guy is cashing in on MPD killings right and left. And so, you know, without digressing on that, um, I lost my point on that whole thing. But it's been frustrating for me to watch law enforcement bash my door down, take me at gunpoint time and time and time again, stuff me into all kinds of their jail and prison cells for 13 years like Joseph. So I do love um, Joel Osteen. Some people love, hate him. They may have problems with that whole, whatever it was during the flooding and Katrina, I think. But for me, ever since I have ever watched Joel Osteen, I have felt like he's talking to me personally and I feel that's God. And oftentimes, 70% of the time that I watch Joel's message, he talks about Joseph. And Joseph, I saw a great uh, question on Twitter. And it was, if you could talk to one person in the Bible, who would it be? But Joseph would be a prime candidate for me, Joshua. And um, 13 years, there's some parallels there running for governor. Um, and so the solution to the violence, though, I want to touch on that while well, you've been so gracious with your time, so I don't talk my way out of it, it maybe something that could help save lives right now. Um, You're familiar, I'm sure, with uh, the Minnesota sex offender program, Joshua. Have you heard of that here in Minnesota where they incapacitate for uh, sexual treatment? The sex offenders in Minnesota, MSOP?
1: Uh, I've not heard of that. Is that basically where they castrate them?
0: No, there are some that they may do that they do have some chemical castrations, but I'm not really familiar with any ever any physical castration. I don't know that's ever happened, but what is important, um, and the audience can understand that in 20 states, um, in response to a horrific rape murder of, I believe, a six or a seven-year-old girl named Megan Kanka in New Jersey by a Jesse Timakwa, that I can't, the long name doesn't matter. Uh, He's either in Minnesota coming up for parole or his son. I saw that when I looked at the Minnesota parole thing coming up a month or, or two ago. So anyhow, the what I'm what I'm talking about is after a horrific rape murder in New Jersey in roughly let's say nineteen ninety-one-ish, um, the New Jersey legislature passed the first of what wound up being twenty different states that remove what are considered by the uh, you know experts to be the worst of the worst? That's your narrative, okay? Um, through a legal mechanism in the legislatures, they passed SVP laws and uh, otherwise SDP laws, and that stands for sexually violent predator. And other states, they're sexually violent persons, and then the other part is the sexually dangerous predator, sexually dangerous. So the concept is that as a society, politicians took it upon themselves to go into legislatures and pass laws to protect people and particularly women and children from the most violent and dangerous sex criminals. That's the theory essentially of what that whole thing is. And when they did that, what I feel was remiss was to not pass similar laws to incapacitate the most violent and dangerous domestic criminals and gang criminals. So we have a gang infection that has spread like um, um, metastasizing um, stage you know, 20 metastatic cancer. The gangs are a cancer. They will spread if they are not eradicated. You can't control gangs. Uh, Mel Carter, Jacob Fry, they want to pour more and more and more money into, get, guess what? More and more and more police. So I've, it finally dawned on me after eight years, Joshua, uh, you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty dense after being beaten by these people, you know, dozens of times by the cops. The, the, the criminals beat me a few times, but the worst beatings and the most frequent were by the, by the jailers. And I didn't do anything to deserve any of that. Um, so anyway, even though I have a pretty thick skull, it, it seems to me that if you, you know, remove violent criminals, that then society would be safer. So while there are certainly constitutional arguments, you know, on both sides, and it's a highly controversial thing, this entire civil commitment of sex offenders—it's real, and I can tell you from personal experience. That the recidivism rate of the sex offenders that go into um, you know New York's wh- wherever they put them, St Peter and moose Lake, Minnesota, the ones that are in there, there is a zero recidivism rate amongst those people. they don't come out. Uh, they had to go to the Supreme Court the last within the last five years where they've trickled you know ten of them out of seven hundred and fifty it's eighty five percent white, so Minnesota. Will treat white sex criminals, and they will release them if they have to. But the concept is they just get rid of them, and it's for politics. Is why, in my view, is it good for public safety? Absolutely. I guess if you're removing the most violent and dangerous sex criminals for good, and you call it, you know, and you're and you're treating them. At least they're not going to reoffend, you know, to the people in the community. Are they going to reoffend with each other in there? Well, wh- whatever. But I'm concerned about the public, the safety of the public, you see. So my point is, out of 750 in Minnesota, and I'll bet if you did a study of the other 20 states, I'll bet you it is very, very similar in demographics. I think it seems pretty racist, even though I'm the last one in the room to ever scream racist. Uh, That's become the label for everything, so it means nothing. It's been diluted into uh, brown sugar and water uh, uh, in a lot of cases, which is sad, because it's supposed to mean something. Um, So anyway, think of this. You have 750 sex offenders that Minnesota has incapacitated, right, Uh, after Governor Pawlenty, Drew Shadeen. This is how it all came about. They were getting ready to shut down this program, Joshua, in 2003, and this is interesting where the, I've always thought maybe there's something more to this, and I think you may be able to see where I'm going with this. All right, imagine this scenario. Minnesota has millions and millions, I mean $100 million poured into the Sex Offender Commitment Program. By uh, 2003, it was on its last leg. They were down to a 100 and some, you know, patients, clients, prisoners, whatever the buzzword was that month. And the thing was on its last legs. There's articles you can read. Dr. Michael Farnsworth, the creator of that MSOP, uh, was quoted as saying, you know, maybe it's better to go a different route. So there was a, it it was in flux. And then what happens is from my prison cell as the state's, you know, sex offender in Moose Lake, I write a five-page letter that survives to this day. I can send it to you. Um, And in that five-page letter, I passionately argue, I state, look, my dad sends me the Star Tribune newspaper and I saw an article in here um, about how Britain is using GPS monitoring uh, technology, monitoring and tracking to track their pedophiles as they call them, their pedophiles, you know? Um, If they have a high-tech pedophile out on the loose, uh, they will track them with GPS monitoring and tracking. And then when he approaches, you know, little Susie, Your daughter, your son, they nab them before they can, you know, uh, molest and rape these children. So Britain, I knew, um, has always been ahead of everybody in the world, including the United States. The United States is not first in law enforcement. They're at best a long, far distant second. Um, the Brits had fingerprint identification and I believe it's 1889 or 1891. I mean, I spent my 10 years in prison studying. I read every single appeal in the state on a sex uh, case, every single homicide, uh, obviously the combined sexual homicides. I'm an expert in every single area. I've spent tens of thousands of hours talking to and picking the brains and learning the details of the thinking of our state's serial killers, you know, the people that you watch on, um, on the crime shows, I lived with them. And, and so anyhow, I digress again. Um, <laughs> wow. Solution to the violence 20s. Okay. Yeah. So you take the 20 States that have that. And if you applied that into what I'm advocating for Joshua I've contacted both of my reps here in St. Paul, Senator Aaron Murphy and Representative Kathy Kuali, Kuali her um, Asian lady. Um, You know, long and short of it, the um, representative wound up sending me back like a threatening email saying that she sent my communication to the, you know, sergeant at arms and all that. And so I've had to, you know, completely back off any concept that my rep might sponsor and introduce my signature bill, Violently Dangerous Persons Act, to cut homicides. I'm predicting this, and this will go down as the first time this has ever been publicly said. Any state that has their legislature pass and enact Violently Dangerous Persons Act legislation, which as soon as the ink dries, as soon as the vote is done electronically, the sheriffs of every state that passes these laws, the sheriffs, not the police, the sheriffs have the authority because these are called respondents. And any person that is um, like a like a relevant person that has knowledge of the party can petition these people that I'm talking about should be removed from society. I don't need to be removed from society, in my view. The people that need to be removed from society are the domestic criminals that have usually an arc of you know, the beatings and the stranglings, and then it's the murder, but then they come right back out in Minnesota. So I'm advocating that when women are terrified and scared, uh, and I have to say this, I called the Ramsey County attorney, none other than John Choi, In 2012, and I spoke with Mr. Choi directly, and I offered him this solution to the violence. And even though he's not a legislator, he has a big platform. He's the county attorney. If he communicates with his DFL friends and his other Republican people across that aisle, somebody would have um, brought forward that bill if he would have um, asked them to. But because it's me, no one will help me until maybe today. You know, it's all part of God's plan. So anyway, I did talk to the Ramsey County attorney, and this is important for the public to know this. And I told Mr. Choi all about how if the legislature passes the bill to protect women and children from the violent domestic criminal, then the sheriff can go get them as soon as you petition them immediately, not tomorrow, now. And so when The bells and whistles go off. The time that's most dangerous for a woman and her children in a domestic homicide, in a a domestic situation, is obviously when the woman is trying to leave and the man feels he is losing control. You know, it's not rocket science. And so when all of the bells and whistles are going off and the victim herself has done everything they tell her, the restraining orders, none of that means anything to the determined killer. They are allowed. They're not only allowed, they are uh, in my view, they are enabled, and they are empowered, and it's wrong. So as a society, I need to know if I'm wrong, and that's why you know, I'm asking you, and I'm so grateful to you, and I'm asking your audience, I have to have you know, a reality check. Am I absolutely, and I mean this sincerely, as I can be, am I absolutely out of my mind, or is it, does it make sense? To remove, in addition to the sex criminals, you remove the most violent and dangerous domestic and gang killers. In St. Paul, within the last two or three days, imagine this. The gang bangers go to a gang banger murder funeral, right? Where, you know, I refer to these people as gang bangers and things. But I also have to say, I have to say this. As a Christian, these are human beings. They are led wrong. They're listening to this stuff from the, the, to the messages from the time they're coming out of the womb. And the messaging is wrong in that community. And if you call that out, then you're some massive racist. And, you know, you have to be there's nothing. Nobody. What can they cancel of mine? They can't take anything. Judge Stevenson released a guy on probation that was his second gun felon with a gun. The first one was just a sawed-off shotgun, that's all. That judge put him away for the ma- mandatory minimum, five years. The judge, like, actually did his job, sort of, I guess, and sent him, you know, to prison. Then the guy gets out of prison, and then he is convicted again of another, not a toy gun, a real gun. And then the same judge, who has kept me from Twitter access, and I can't tweet about I can't talk at all, <laughs> He, oh, I can show you this in the court. I have the transcripts. I have been censored and silenced. I couldn't use the internet for five years. And, and, it, and it just, and I'm trying to calm down because it's so upsetting. But instead of them getting away with telling me I cannot use the internet. I know the constitution. I know the law. I know what Packingham versus, I know the law. So I do what I am allowed to under the law and the constitution, regardless of whatever their conditions say. And all they do is just keep slamming me right back in. But the blessing and the joy that I have in my heart right now is is, it's overflowing because one guard said it well year, a couple years ago. I'm in the Ramsey County Jail, and you know, you walk by the bubble, right? And it's all blacked out, so they can see you and watch you, but you can't see what you know. You can't see what they're doing. So I walked right up. You know, well, I, I wanted to just see who. I, I know them all. They all know me. I walked right up. The guys got me on a with five, six other. I, I you know, gently broke his grasp. Put my hands, well, who the hell's in there? I'm laughing, the guy says to me. And then another officer said, Oh, you know, the guy was almost reaching for his taser. And, you know, the guy, and then the, the the main guy that I was with, he said, Oh, no, 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 back off. You know, it's cool. This is Evanstead. He said, You don't know Evanstead. He said, There's no controlling Evanstead. And then some of the other prisoners laughed, and I, you know, I said, Thank you. It's the highest cost. It was the, high, the highest compliment I, I think I have seriously ever been paid. And it's uh-huh. not because I'm an anarchist and I'm uh-huh. a – yeah. Oh, take yeah. a deep breath. Thanks.
1: <laughs> yeah. Okay. Take a deep breath. Listen, we got to save this because we're way over time. Okay. Let's do this again. Okay, uh, great. Because I, I know that you have more to expose and more to talk about. Yeah, but this has been a lot to process. Yes, and and I and for the sake of just again, we're over time and everything else. Let's okay. do it again. But okay, again, I admire your courage, Thomas, uh, to speak out and look. You were poking the bear, and uh, that takes a lot of courage. And so, I'm grateful to get this interview out to people because I look what we've done. If anything, we've accomplished today is force people to look at things from a different perspective and also to really look at this prison system that we have, which is really, look, I can, I can call it a slave system, but that's simplifying it too much. It's, it's way more complex. It is a, it's an industry like the, the military industrial complex. There is a prison complex. There's just like, there's a, like we talk about the drug war. Well, it, this business, the, prisons, the prison system, is a slave ship. It's a slave system. It is corrupt to the core. And so –
0: Joshua, you do you, you have PACER where you're able – do you have somebody that you know with PACER or some way to look at my complaint in a federal case? I can send it to you. I have my – so I just wanted to let you know. I have the lawsuit, but the problem is it's going to go away because I need an attorney. So maybe with your platform, we can find an attorney, but my lawsuit attacks exactly that. The prison industrial complex, the 25 cents, it's all mincor. they want you to go out in poverty because then the odds of coming back are so much higher. The single greatest challenge anybody has coming out of prison, I read actually a paper on it, it was the right paper, it's poverty. So um, I'm advocating in my lawsuit very quickly, for internet access, I wasn't allowed to find housing from inside of the prison. If I could have gone on Craigslist uh, safely with, and they have a million safeguards. When you're on probation and parole, like I've been as the sex offender and all that, there's software is what I'm saying. So they can safeguard the public, but yet a guy sitting in his prison cell, I believe, should be able to make as much money as he's able to from his prison cell and then maybe first and foremost, take a certain percentage out to pay back any restitutions. The victims come absolutely first. And then after the victims are, 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 are you know, there's no justice. What does money do? But, I mean, give as much money. That's, that's the currency of the, of the, you know, justice. The rest, of, it's all money. So once that's gone, but anyway, my lawsuit is Evanstead versus Schnell. The Minnesota DOC commissioner is... His last name is Schnell, S C H N E L L. It's a federal lawsuit, so you have to look under the U.S. District Court 20 CV 1464. I know that's going to be a fascinating read for you, Joshua, and I wanted to thank you so much.
1: Yeah, Thomas, God bless you, man. And um, I look forward to doing this again and continuing this conversation, but I'm also very curious and interested in the feedback from the audience. So, Oh, that stuff. was my That'd final okay. thing.
0: Could I please put my website or my email so that I can share my innocence project file, all my case documents to show what I'm saying, which is that I was framed. I'm innocent. I'd like to be able to, to send anybody anything to corroborate what I'm saying. Would that be okay if I shouted yeah. out my website?
1: Yeah, so I want you to plug that but also know that you've got everyone knows that you can go to our website. In the media, Perfect. Kit, you'll be able to see the links to everything he's speaking about. But Thomas, go ahead and share with the audience how they can find you and uh, how they can support what you're doing.
0: Okay, thank you very much. I have a very, very uh, rudimentary uh, website that I need help on. I don't know how to set it up, um, um, but, but uh, it's there and uh, I can get donations and most importantly, feedback and be able to share again information if anybody's curious about anything I'm talking about. The solution to the violence, for example um i'm at um publicsafetymn.com so just www or http whatever it is and then simply very easy publicsafetymn.com and again god bless everybody god bless you joshua thank you so much for giving me the opportunity and i'm just i'm humbled and i'm grateful thank you so much
1: uh we're going to do it again brother i'll talk to you soon
0: can't wait thank
1: you god bless you thomas wow um, that's a lot this is why I wanted him to talk because I wouldn't even know where to start now I have a bunch of questions for him uh, and we'll save the questions for the next time I'm looking forward to looking at these core documents and everything else and you know talking about how and I've been wrongly accused of a lot of things in my life um, and of course I've gotten away with a lot of bad stuff too And it's very, very interesting being on this side of it to to hear this. And, you know, I believe it. I do. And I'm sure some of you have questions and you're scratching your head. But I can just tell you that, like, I'll go to the PTSD for a second. I still have PTSD from my, was it my second arrest or my third arrest? My second arrest. Make no I don't know. It doesn't matter the the order that was in. But the day I got arrested what I, with what I thought was a prostitute, it that moment, that experience was traumatizing. And you know what? It should have been. Um, should he have not been, you know, perusing on sex ads? Well, yeah, I, I guess you could say no, he shouldn't have been doing that. And, uh, and you know, I mean, let's take the moral side out of it. And whatever your views on having sex freely and all that stuff, like that's that's a separate issue, and you can look at his part in it. But I believe him when he was saying he doesn't want to be involved with minors, and I, I mean I believe that. Listen, I've met pedophiles, and I've met kid touchers, and there's an air about them, and um, and I don't pick up on it but I know what he's been through is a lot. And um, you know, I just, unfortunately his story mimics so many others. I think about a lot of the the men in prison, African-American men that are in prison because of pot crime. Like cannabis is a, is a gift from God and anyone being arrested for it. I mean, I guess maybe if you're moving pounds of it or whatever, that's something, but in your weapons, and I know there's some cases that yes, you should try and go after, but there's a lot of people with like, have a bag of weed and they're in prison for 10 years and then it's on the record. So now that it's illegal in some states, they can't be involved in the business. But there's a lot of people that have been, that they were just picked out of a lineup for rape or murder that they had nothing to do with. Nothing. There are so many wrongly convicted people in the prison system, that's why I believe with everything in me that he's being honest. And if he's not, then God will deal with it. But until I see otherwise, I, I'm he's supporting Thomas. And anything I'm able to do, and I'm asking this, any of you out there that are attorneys, I know there are several of you that watch, or you, you know, this is, I know some of you are involved with helping victims that have been accused wrongly. If you wanna look into his case and you can help support it, please do. I wanna know more about this. I wanna understand it because again, this is in an area that I'm not well-versed, but I'll tell you, um, we do have an epidemic in this country and that is putting men and women in prison that don't belong there. And, um, but this is way, way deeper, way more complicated. And so we're gonna have to get the rest of the story uh, the next time he comes on. Anyway, God bless you guys. Thank you for being here. Uh, What, what, wow. What a freaking, what a freaking day that was. (laughs) What a broadcast. Anyway, uh, we're going to be out of here. We'll see you next time. But thank you for being here. And again, uh, we appreciate your support. Please share this out with friends. And um, if there's anything that can be done to help Thomas, let's do it. God bless you. (laughs)